Mortimer, Episode 1. Thank you for tuning in to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Good day, beloved citizens of Georgetown. It is I, your mayor. I am declaring this day Mortimer Day in our fair city. Everyone is hereby allowed to take the day off work and listen to this radio version of Mortimer's Adventures. Rotting fish and chocolate permeated his nostrils with a pleasantly foul odour, and Mortimer inhaled deeply as he scratched his face with the sharpened piece of graphite between his pudgy fingers. He narrowed his eyes at the majestic ship that rested beyond the green lawn where he reclined, bobbing ever so gently in the Winyer Bay. "'Ah, you marvellous minx! I see what you're doing!' His yelp caused one of the large park's pigeons to jump in surprise. Mortimer went back to work on the parchment placed on the easel before him. He was scribbling away, paying no notice to the port as it grew busier. Men wearing bowlers and women carrying their morning parasols were dressed in their finest Sunday clothes and wandering amongst street vendors. They sampled ice cream cones for a nickel, purchased brightly coloured tapestries, and enjoyed fresh cold vegetable salads, artisan breads, and other delicious locally produced food items. Others enjoyed their Sunday afternoons by sneaking into the grove of trees to misbehave. The Georgetown port was particularly busy as it was most weekends, though Mortimer preferred to venture outdoors when his chances of being seen were reduced. He could not justify losing any more time with the majestic craft. It was nearing the end of the season, and soon it would pull away from the harbour to make its voyage across the sea to Cuba for trade of goods. He was adding some exquisitely detailed shading to the bow, when an old man wearing a soot-grey trench coat carrying a gold-etched ivory cane appeared before him. "'Are you the captain?' he asked, noticing Mortimer's captain's hat. Mortimer looked up, irritated to be interrupted. Now he would have to start over, for any errant line in his shaving would disgrace the integrity of the entire piece of art. I would hardly call myself a captain, he barked out. But then his eyes grew thoughtful. Admiral suits me more agreeably. The old man's observation was correct, however, for according to the status on the listing of the Boat Bottle Club of Chicago, Mortimer was merely a captain. That was only temporary. Mortimer reminded himself, trying to ignore the prying vagrant beside him. In exactly 147 days, he would be promoted to admiral status. This would lead to him being bestowed with the regalia of the royal seas. 
Mortimer's moustache twitched in pleasure at the thought. Once he was admiral, he would be done with this ostentatious city port of miscreant vagabonds. No longer would he be forced to be the victim to the whimsy of his meddling nursemaid, or the nonsensical ramblings of his cognitively decrepit mother. If you're not a captain, then why do you wear a captain's hat? Ignoring the question, Mortimer grunted in derision at the unsatisfactory nature of the state of his garment. He flicked a flake of graphite from his pressed navy lapel. Mortimer was meticulous about three things in life. His ships, the food he ate, and his lapel. During his childhood, Mortimer had often been dragged by his father to the centennial office in the city. This was where Mortimer had been forced to endure the presence of Herberger Wolfenstein, a man with a disgusting condition that left his lapel covered in flakes of white snow that fluttered in the air with each movement of his head. Mortimer's father had rebuked Mortimer once after a particularly offensive display of flaking had forced Mortimer to interject with a battery of treatment recommendations. Since then, Mortimer had determined that he would never be caught with a single flake on his lapel. Mortimer believed one could never be too careful about the condition of one's lapel. His moustache twitched again, and he resumed shading. But sensing something amiss, he shifted his eyes to the old man who was still standing in front of him, staring through beady eyes that were nearly covered by thick white eyebrows. The man leaned down in an attempt to steal a glance at Mortimer's work, but seeing a potential intrusion, Mortimer's leg shot out in one swift motion and landed square against the elder's cane. The man toppled to his side, accomplishing two of Mortimer's goals at once, silencing him and removing him from his previous position. He had been blocking Mortimer's view of the lady herself. "'Oh, Mistress Esquire, such a sultry duchess you are!' Mortimer clapped his hands together in renewed appreciation of the ship's beauty. Enraptured as he was, he did not even notice the figure crawling at his feet toward the sidewalk. Nor did he hear the cry of the women and hurried assistance of the young men that rushed to the older fellow's side. Mortimer licked the tip of his pencil, and with a smile on his lips, he went back to work, vigorously sketching. As the hours passed, the sun made its way across the southern sky. Lanterns along the sidewalks were lit, and a growl deep in Mortimer's bowels indicated that it was time to go home. With satisfaction, he slipped his graphite back into its proper pouch, folded the parchment carefully, and tucked it into his bag. The easel folded easily, and with loaded arms, Mortimer hailed a hack to take him home. The Iscariot Mansion was one of the grandest in Georgetown. It sat atop a pretty hill and was surrounded by a protective boulder wall. Guards stood placidly at the grand iron-gated entrance and pulled the gates open as Mortimer arrived home. He paid them no mind, but scurried up the flower-lined walkway and, bursting through the massive double-panel mansion doors, he went straight through the marble foyer toward a grand staircase that led to the second story. I shall dine in my quarters this evening, Mortimer's voice boomed out in a deep baritone typical of the Iscariot men. Without awaiting a response, he disappeared up the stairs. Not ten minutes later, there was a knock on his door. Neville, you evasive reprobate, Mortimer's head snapped up. Where have you been? The butler cringed from his position in the doorway. 
Mortimer's dinner on a silver tray in his gloved hands. Since the lad was old enough to speak, he demanded a very specific dinner with a very exact presentation. Neville carried it to him now. I have your sauerkraut, sausage, custard, and mutton. The sausage better be from Harry's. I assure you it is, sir. It is also boiled, not grilled, baked, or fried, and Mrs. Peabody was kind enough to cut off the tips. Sausage tips are highly uncivilized. Neville set the tray down. Mrs. Peabody's homemade custard is in the small cream-coloured saucer with the periwinkle dotted around the collar, exactly as you like it. Not looking away from his bottle-boat project, Mortimer's pudgy hand shot up and wrapped around a greasy sausage. He began to devour it noisily. Moments later, his hand slithered up to the tabletop and groped around the tray for the slab of mutton. He ignored Neville's cringe and allowed all of his higher faculties to remain focused on the task at hand. Neville backed away from Mortimer, who he knew to be quite touchy regarding his personal space, and cringed as another chunk of mutton disappeared from the plate. Mortimer's mother, Mrs. Iscariot, had insisted that as soon as he had teeth to chew, that her son be served mutton, from kosher lambs only, every single day for good strength and virility. Doing his best to divert his mind from the potential virility-boosting qualities of the item on the tray, Neville continued to back toward the door. Doing so, he nearly tripped over some of the many trinkets that made up the chaos of Mortimer's quarters. "'You've a caller tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. The race is at eleven. Shall I put out the mustard cravat?' Neville straightened his tie, attempting to conceal his misstep. As expected, Mortimer paid him no mind. Instead, he shoved another bite of gravy-soaked mutton into his gaping maw. "'Oh, lady, to behold your majesty upon completion shall demand an incandescent draping of awe. Why, even the president himself shall beg to aboard your deck.' Mortimer held his craftsmanship before his eyes, while happily licking his greasy fingers. Neville cringed. "'Is there anything else that you require, sir?' "'Neville!' Mortimer jumped and whirled, his hazel eyes searching for the source of the intrusion. "'What are you still doing in my study?' "'Of course, sir.' Neville lowered himself into a rigid bow. "'I shall depart so that you may dine in peace.' Back in the kitchen, Neville leaned against the door, a weary expression across his handsome features. "'Is Mortimer in one of his moods?' Mrs. Peabody, the house cook, looked up as Neville entered the kitchen. "'I assure you he is particularly fixated on his project at the moment.' Neville settled himself at the counter and opened the paper to the business section. "'Oh, some things never change,' Mrs. Peabody mused. "'Bereavement or not?' Neville sighed, for Mrs. Peabody's words were true. It had been two years since Mortimer's father had been brutally murdered, and from an outsider's perspective the whole event seemed to go unnoticed by the young man. Mortimer was, as always, in his own paradise, surrounded by his bottle-boats, avoiding human society, and paying little attention to those around him. Neville had known Mortimer since the young master's infancy for he had been fortuitously hired by Mr. Scariot over twenty years ago. It was 1898, and Neville had just arrived in America by boat, and then in Georgetown by train. He carried with him one small bag, a suit on his back, 
and the bowler on the head of thick hair that he'd inherited from his mother. He was young, eager, and in search of a better life. Neville was getting his bearings at the pub on market when Mr. Iscariot walked through the doors. Since that time, due to prohibition, the town's pubs had been boarded up, but once upon a time they were quite popular. On this particular day there were at least a half-dozen gentlemen lounging about, drinking tonics and smoking cigars. Neville had never been quite sure about what it was about him in particular that caught Mr. Iscariot's attention. But immediately upon entering the pub, Mr. Iscariot had handed Neville his bowler and pistol and asked him to order a whiskey before going and settling himself in his designated corner booth. "'What'll you have?' The bartender cocked an eyebrow as Neville approached. "'Um, uh, whiskey, sir.' "'For Mr. Iscariot, I assume?' Uh, "'Yes, sir.' "'You the new butler?' "'Not that I'm aware of, sir.' The bartender poured a tumbler. "'Watch a step, kid. Word is that Mr. Iscariot just ousted his last butler for making eyes to the missus.' "'Killed?' "'Will you be putting this on his tab?' Neville's throat was dry. He nodded. "'Won't he be arrested, then?' The bartender shot him a look. "'What kind of stupid question is that?' "'Oh, silly, of course. Forgive me.' Neville reached for the glass and was about to turn away when the bartender grabbed his wrist. Seeing as you're new in town, he lowered his voice. Let me give you a little perspective. Huh? And this is when Neville learned that Mr. Iscariot was a titan in the shipping business and a member of the city council. He was also one of the richest and most influential men in the country and had essentially revitalized the Georgetown economy by making it an international port of trade. As the saviour of Georgetown, Mr. Iscariot carried perpetual amnesty. You'd be wise to stay on his good side. Oh, thank you, Neville managed. The bartender turned away dismissively, and Neville hurried to Mr. Iscariot's booth, whiskey in hand. Took you long enough, the large man snapped. Take this list of applicants and review them. I expect them to be narrowed down to three or four by the end of the day, and interviews set up starting tomorrow. Sir? Nannies! Mr. Iscariot's face flushed cherry red. We have had applicants from around the world, most assuredly to live vicariously off my financial teat. Teat? But I shall not stand for a money-hungry nanny, thundered Mr. Iscariot. Find someone with spunk. I require a well-qualified nanny, someone with training in the social graces. She must exude academic aptitude and have the ability to train my child into a business maven. I am determined that it will be a son, and that he shall carry the Iscariot name to even higher reaches of glory. At a loss for words, Neville nodded. Mr. Iscariot finished the rest of his drink and narrowed his eyes. "'And your name is?' "'Neville, sir.' "'Any last name? Blackstone.' "'Well, then, Neville Blackstone. Seems that my last butler is now six feet under, and I find myself in need of a new butler. You're hired.' Neville swallowed the lump in his throat, nodded again. He'd started at the Iscariot mansion that same afternoon.' Unable to focus on his reading, Neville stood up and went to the kettle. He selected a delicate teacup from the cupboard and poured himself some tea. "'How's the business doing?' 
Seeing that her companion was restless, Mrs. Peabody took advantage of her company and tried to make conversation. "'Is the Centennial doing well?' Neville returned to his newspaper silently. "'Oh, I do hope that Mortimer will return to his training with Mr. Wolfenstein soon.' She knew little about the status of the estate, except that it had been left unilaterally in the hands of Mortimer. According to Mr. Iscariot's barrister, Mr. Orbright, the company was also going to be passed to the young squire as soon as Herberger Wolfenstein, the temporary president, determined that Mortimer had sufficiently passed the training period. This was highly clandestine, as the shareholders were under the impression that Mortimer had already taken over in place of his father. In Mrs. Peabody's opinion, the new master of the Iscariot estate was ill-equipped to manage an estate and a thriving multi-million dollar company. Why, he was barely competent in the basic social graces that were so valuable in everyday life. She knew, however, that if she mentioned any of this, she would earn a verbal thrashing from Neville. So instead she turned the heat on in the oven and tried a different approach. "'He's quite a passion for ships.' She nonchalantly dusted flour onto the counter. "'The Esquire has been particularly inspiring for him,' Neville murmured, half listening as he flipped to the next page. "'Well, I'm sure he's still desperately grieving after—well, you know—' Mrs. Peabody dragged the rolling pin across the freshly mixed batch of dough. She could feel her companion dully gazing at her from beneath black-rimmed lorgnettes. She looked up, her cheeks flushing. "'Oh!' "'Don't stare at me like that. It's possible.' Instead of answering, Neville turned the page in his newspaper and brought the china cup up to his lips, the curve of which was barely visible beneath his black and silver-dusted moustache. He finished his tea. Taking advantage of the last potential for conversation, Mrs. Peabody flipped the massive slab of dough and went to work on the other side. "'Well,' "'I heard that Miss Longhorn will be coming by again tomorrow.' "'Indeed she shall. Have fresh flowers brought into the entryway. See to it that Millie polishes the silver.' "'Will he receive her this time?' Mrs. Peabody perked up. "'Oh, I do hope she will be able to compel him to go to the races with all of her friends.' Neville folded his paper and walked the teacup to the massive alabaster sink. He placed it carefully inside. I would not count on it. He touched his hand to his hat and turned, departing from the kitchen just as quickly as he had come, Mrs. Peabody staring after him. 10 o'clock p.m., June 12, 1918. The tip came into the station just after the clock had five. The aristocrat was on the move. Drenched in a cloak of the color of onyx and a bowler that darkened watchful eyes, He settled into the darkest corner of the little room, lit a cigarette, and waited. No one paid him any notice, each minding their own business. Throwing back libations that scalded throats and inhaling cigarettes or cigars until the room thickened with fog reminiscent of the Winya Bay Harbor at early dawn. There was a lonesome saxophone playing a sorry tune from the stage at the far end of the room, and its notes twisted and mingled with the din of voices and the clink of glasses at the bar. He took another drag, tapping ashes into the crystal tray on the table before him, and then the velvet curtain was pushed back. The man carried an ivory cane, not for utility but rather for social appeal. 
he wore an ebony-colored suit that wrapped around his massive frame. A lasciviously dressed blonde hung from his free arm, her cherry-painted lips turned up, arrogant to be seen in the presence of such wealth. They moved toward him, paying him no mind. Not five feet away, she slid sinuously into the designated booth, leaning forward in an attempt to reward her companion with the prospect of her diamond-studded décolletage. "'It is such a fine necklace, Gerard.' "'Nothing but the best for my dear lady.' He hung his cane on the back of the booth and gestured to the bartender before squeezing himself next to her. "'You spoil me.' "'How did you get away this evening?' he asked in a change of subject. "'Oh, let's not talk of that.' She waved her hand dismissively. "'Tell me more about how I deserve presents.' "'You will have diamonds.' "'Yes, and gold.' Her eyes widened at his promises. "'And whatever your vapid little heart desires.' Oh, "'Gerard!' she slapped him playfully. "'I'm not vapid.' "'But all you women are,' he argued, leaning back as two drinks were placed before them. "'You tell me that you dally with me for love and affection?' Her lips pursed into a pout. "'Well, how could you ask such a question? You know I love you.' "'I will not tolerate lying women,' his baritone voice rose authoritatively. "'Oh, Gerard, I am wholly and truly dedicated only to you. Then you will have to prove it. Anything!' Her voice was breathless. He shifted in the booth and pulled an envelope out of his pocket. He spoke more quietly. "'I got word from Robert.' Oh, after all these years, he's finally called. Dearest Gerard, did you send him my letters? Of course I did. Gerard opened the document. The last installment came. The time to wait has passed. When? When did it come? She reached for the letter, but he yanked it out of her reach and replaced it into his pocket. That is no matter to you. But what about the certificate? Don't you worry a little head about that either. He picked up his glass and swirled the liquid in it thoughtfully. I do believe I will miss this little place. He swallowed the contents in one massive gulp and slammed the glass to the table with self-satisfaction. I've not packed anything. We must go by my place before setting sail. You aren't going anywhere, baby. Gerard signaled for another drink. What? A voice pitched. But, but, but you promised. I told you that you were going to have to prove it. Well, how dare you? Gerard grabbed her wrist before a hand contacted his face. He growled at her, his voice lowering beneath the noise of the bar. Her face flushed at his words and her jaw dropped. You lying bastard! His nostrils flared with temper and the black and silver mustache above his lips quivered in suppressed rage. The table groaned as he pushed himself up from the booth, yanking her up with him. Let me go! But no one went to her rescue. For her adversary was Gerard Iscariot, one of the richest men in the country. No one turned their heads, and the saxophone carried on as the blue-blooded villain dragged the screaming woman out of the bar. Leaving several coins on the table, he followed them into the night. 1920. Bam! It was an ostentatious display of fire and gunpowder that sent Mortimer Iscariot reeling backwards in his chair. Brown pleat boots were flung wildly into the air as his massive frame careened toward the filthy, dirt-laden earth. 
a high-pitched squeal followed by a boisterous vroomph emitted from the massive frame as it struck the ground, his face a mask of umbrage and surprise. Lily Lou Longhorn fluttered to his side in a moment, the red polka dots of her gown adding an ever-so-nauseating flavour to Mortimer's present state. "'Oh, darling,' she crooned, "'are you all right?' "'What was that monstrosity?' bellowed Mortimer, whose latent indignation had suddenly been refueled by his upside-down position. For just several moments ago, he'd been more pleasantly occupied in the musings of a new project. The Esquire, a monstrosity of a ship that had been docked at the harbour for tours these last six weeks. Mortimer had been down every day that week in hopes of solitude, wielding a piece of graphite against a pack of simple, trusty parchment. But his musings were constantly being interrupted by passers-by, who found pleasure in interrogating him regarding trivial pursuits such as the weather, while others felt persuaded to share condolences for his late father. Lily Lou had happened by the most, her voice being particularly annoying to Mortimer. He cringed now as she flapped her hands in front of his face. "'The gun's signalling the races to begin, sir,' answered the butler. "'Oh, I do declare!' Lily Lou groaned, her face a mask of worry. "'Someone help my dearest Mortimer up!' "'I am quite all right,' Mortimer protested, and with motivation renewed by her now close proximity, he rolled his rotund body to the side and away from her squawking. A pair of white-gloved hands reached down to assist him, and Mortimer growled and snapped his teeth together several times in warning. The wise gentleman increased the distance between them by several paces. "'Oh, you really should be ashamed of yourself, Herbert!' Lily Lou was wagging her finger at the superbly austere fellow who Mortimer had just dissuaded from coming to his assist. "'To suggest we all come here!' Mortimer groaned and pushed himself to his knees. But then he narrowed his eyes, for sprawled in the dirt was a tattered sticker with a coat-of-arms emblem that had been torn from a cigarette box. "'Felicity, indeed!' he plucked the sticker from the ground and held it into the air. "'The maiden flag!' "'Mortimer, dearest, you must have a surgeon look at you,' Lily Lou commanded, instantaneously adhering herself against Mortimer's lateral folds. "'I dare say he looks rather well,' a gloved man crooked a brow and leaned against the paddock. "'Doesn't seem to care in the least.' Mortimer licked his lips greedily, and standing up, he extracted the ardent woman from his side. She flew backwards, landing in the arms of the man with the gloves. He shot her a singular look, that had her bolting from his arms, and she immediately went to work smoothing her skirts and blushing furiously. While this took place, Mortimer whirled to face the butler, who watched from afar. "'Neville!' he thundered, the wrapper waving in the spring breeze. "'We must return to my study at once!' "'But the races, Your Grace!' Neville's words were futile, however, for Mortimer had already lumbered past, muttering fervently about the naked aft of the Esquire. With a flourish and a wave of his top hat, the butler bowed once to the party some of whom had politely engaged themselves in other matters, while two of the gentlemen watched the scene with amusement. He then turned and followed Mortimer's trail of sauerkraut, dust, 
and no explanation whatsoever. He's so dreamy. He's a buffoon. Haven't you seen his eyes, Cindy? Lily Lou Longhorn drew the brush through her crop of blonde hair. They speak of adventure and mystery. Oh, they speak of romance. Cindy snorted and blew at the polish on her fingernails. His eyes say, don't touch my sausage, lest I give you a verbal thrashing that will put the world to sleep. Lily Lou tossed a pillow across the room at her friend. Well, I respect a man who has a keen grasp on the English language. Take my advice, Lil. Romance is the last thing on that man's mind. Oh, and how would you know? Well, first of all, I've never seen him look twice at a woman. He's a man of focus. I imagine he's deep in thought regarding more important matters. Cindy gave Lily Lou a bland look. A man who doesn't appreciate a nice-looking dame has got to make you wonder. Well, we, he's a gentleman. Lily Lou went back to work, brushing the other side of her head as Cindy went on. Frank checks out the ladies all the time, and let me tell you, it gives me confidence to know my man has a well-oiled machine that's ready to take me for a ride. Shh! Lily Lou twisted around in her vanity stool. My parents will hear you. Cindy rolled her eyes. You know, you were not immaculately conceived. Oh, don't make me throw this hairbrush at you. I don't know what you see in Mortimer. He's never once shown any interest in you. He's clumsy and he says the weirdest things. Why, well, he's an artist, Lily Lou insisted. Artists are often misunderstood. No one has seen his work. Is he really an artist? Well, he's waiting for the right moment to debut his drawings. Perhaps he shall open a gallery. Ah, oh, I bet his bank account sweetens the deal a little too. Lily Lou let out a gasp of surprise. Oh, I don't know why I keep you as my best friend. Well, I'm good for you. Cindy examined her craftsmanship with approval. Who else would be so honest? It's not about his money. No? Cindy glanced up. Then tell me, what's got you so loony for Mortimer Iscariot? Lily Lou moved to her bed, sat down and clutched a pillow to her chest. He's unlike the other men. Her eyes grew dreamy. He doesn't talk and talk about racing and horses. He doesn't care what other people think. He's also unattainable. Unattainable? Lily Lou's cheeks puffed pink. All the men throw themselves at you. You're bored and are looking for a challenge. Lily Lou couldn't deny that, but chose to ignore Cindy's observation. I love his long hair. He's a man of the sea. Perhaps one day he will take me away from this place. Oh, how I long to leave Georgetown. He has no social tact whatsoever. A man who doesn't care about social norms is attractive to me. Well, I'll believe that as far as I can throw you. Well, it doesn't matter. I love Mortimer. I love his brightly colored bow ties and his black lace capote Oxfords. Oh, and don't forget that stupid captain's hat. I adore his hat. Cindy rolled her eyes. You've gone mad. Oh, he's hapless, unassuming and uncommonly sweet. Sure, sometimes he's completely unaware of most social cues. Lily Lou lowered her voice. But I think he's actually a genius. Perhaps instead of babbling on about useless things like business and the stock market, he's coming up with ways to end prohibition, cure world hunger, and build massive, beautiful ships. Are we talking about the same guy? Cindy wrinkled her nose in disgust. The fat one with the bushy moustache? Lily Lou pressed her lips together. It's growing late. Perhaps you might wish to leave. Oh, come on, Lil. Don't be a wet blanket. Cindy quickly added colour to the nails on her other foot. 
So, let's say this Mortimer fella is not an asexual and that... Asexual? Hear me out. Cindy raised her hand to stop Lily Lou. So, let's assume Mortimer was into you. Lily Lou lifted her chin. Yes? Your father would never approve. Well, he might. Cindy let out a hearty laugh. <laughs> oh, now I know you've gone mad. I have not. Your dad hasn't let anyone besides the milkman and Herbert Brennard near this place since you turned fifteen. The only reason he lets Herbert near you is because his father owns the bank that manages the Longhorn Foundation account. Lily Lou pouted. Oh, look, don't take it personally. As the second richest man on the continent, your dad has the right to send away whoever he wants. Oh, I despise him trying to ruin all my fun. But his overprotective nature will save you from being sought out by fortune hunters. Oh, now you sound like my mother. Lily Lou flopped back in the bed and stared at the ceiling. I do declare, Cindy spoke in a mocking tone. However shall I manage without my mink scarf? Oh, shut up. Even though I think your father is overprotective, he is saving you a lot of trouble. Whose side are you on anyway? Lily Lou pushed up on her elbow and glared at her friend. Cindy grinned. He'll hate you going out with Mortimer. Entirely improper. Well, that makes me more determined than ever. And what are you going to do then? Cindy's interest was piqued. Lily Lou grew thoughtful. Mortimer has been down at the park every day this week. He's obsessed with that ship. Yes, the Esquire. He's been drawing it, Lily Lou nodded. I'll stop by to see him. Like every other day this week? Cindy's interest vanished, and she went back to her nails. Don't you worry, I have a plan. What about Herbert? I heard he was caught in Helen Perry, too. Maybe some friendly competition will do him some good. That's my girl. Cindy capped the nail polish lid. So, tell me, what's your plan? Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym Audiobook performance by Michael Drew Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.